Um, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Right now, we're, um, we're going to be entering into a new uh, sermon series, I, I, I guess you could say. Our, uh, if you're new to our church, the um, teaching schedule of our church follows the church calendar. So every year in the fall, which are the months leading up to Christmas, Christmas marks the coming of Christ. And the time before the coming of Christ was the Old Testament. So we always look at an Old Testament book. We were looking at the book of Exodus this last fall. And then usually at, from Christmas to the time of Pentecost, today is, is Pentecost, the time when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, we look at one of the Gospels. So for the last few years, we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And then from Pentecost through the summer months, we usually look at a New Testament letter to the churches. And for the last four years, while well, I was gone last year for sabbatical, but three years before that, we were looking at 1 Corinthians. So it's been a while, but we're going to be picking up in 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 11, and I've been working on that 1 Corinthians 11 sermon for several weeks. It's going to be on the topic of gender, important topic, and it was 6 o'clock last night. I was like, I need more time on this. <laughs> it's such an important topic. So I called Ava. I said, is there any chance you haven't printed the bulletins for tomorrow morning? And, you know, she usually prints them earlier in the morning, earlier in the week, but we have Presbytery this week, so she hadn't printed them. I said, I'm doing something different. And so we're going to look at a passage earlier in 1 Corinthians, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, and then we'll, we'll get to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll spend two weeks on it in the next couple weeks. So, um, so today we're looking at this this. Beautiful passage from 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and open our eyes to understand your word and to behold wonders therein. And we, uh, we ask that you would open the eyes of the blind, give hearing to the deaf. You would raise the dead. And um, Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher, our comforter, our counselor. You would convict us and help us to understand your word here, we ask 
In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. So as I mentioned uh, today, marks uh, the day in the church calendar where we remember Pentecost. The church throughout history has remembered the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is recorded in Acts chapter 2, which describes after Jesus had ascended back into heaven, he, he died on the cross, he rose the third day from the dead, he spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God, and then he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and then he sent his spirit to the church, to, to the spirit, to do his mission, to be his witnesses, you know, in every nation. And, uh, and so this morning I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at a passage that teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're just going to be answering two simple questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? That question is going to be more theological answer. And how does he work in my life? It's a more psychological question. So a theological question, who is the Holy Spirit? Psychological question, how does he work in my life? And profound things in this text. So first question for us this morning, who is the Holy Spirit? And the first answer that we see in this passage to that question is that the Holy, is the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you might think that's a fairly basic answer. And, uh, and what I mean by that is that the Bible teaches us the unique quality of the God of the Bible is that the God of the Bible is one God who made all things, who exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are each one is fully God. They are equal in power and glory, and yet they're distinct persons. And so that's why when Christians say things like, the Bible says that God is love, the reason we can say something like God is love is because how many persons do you need to have love? Well, at least two. So if God is love, he needs to have at least two persons. The Bible says there's three persons who are like a community, the Father and the Son, and they glorify each other, and they, they, they mutually indwell one another. And so they have this life together, and what the whole creation is about is about us sharing in the life of this God who is love. And so what do we mean when we say that the Holy Spirit is a person? I know some of you, when you hear that word person, you imagine a human and that's not what we mean when we say that the Holy Spirit is a person. What we mean is that the Holy Spirit has personal attributes. So, for example, in this passage, if you look at verse 10, it says, These things God revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person in which, uh, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit who is from God. And if you skip down verse 13, it says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but, uh, but taught by the Spirit. And what this tells us, look at all these things the Spirit does. The Spirit searches, the Spirit knows things, knows about God, the Spirit comprehends, you know, has opinions, has, thinks about things, and then the Spirit teaches and the Spirit reveals these are all things that persons do. We also know that the Spirit can be grieved. The Spirit can be saddened by, uh, you know, the sins among God's people. And so what that tells us is that even though the Bible often uh, refers to the Holy Spirit as the power of God, he is not simply an energy. He is a person. And so when you read through the New Testament, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is never referred to as an it, referred to as him. 
And that's probably important practice for us as a church when we talk about the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't say, it was revealing this to me. We say, he was revealing this to me. He is among us, working and revealing and teaching and convicting and, and being grieved. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is, he is fully God. But the three persons of the Trinity have different functions, you might say, in the work of God in the world. And so what is the function of the Holy Spirit? What, what does he do? And there are many ways that you could answer that, but I think one way this passage answers that is that the Holy Spirit is the animating power of the age to come. The Holy Spirit is the animating power of the age to come. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at verse 6, you'll notice it says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. Now, what's that talking about when it says this age? Well, the Bible tells us that history is divided into two ages. One is this present evil age, the, the age kind of dominated by sin and, and human sin and the fall. And then there's the age to come. They're in contrasted with, with one another. And the Holy Spirit is not of this age, but is of the age to come. And this age has a certain kind of logic to it. There's a way that this age is run. You know, humans are competitive and they're envious and they're greedy and they get angry and they fight for themselves. And that's how the whole system of this world and this age operates. But there is coming uh, this age when Jesus will come again and he will set all things right in his creation. It says every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no suffering and sorrow and humans will love and serve one another. We will love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbors, ourselves. And it's all that God's creation was meant to be will finally become that. And what the Bible tells us is that the animating power of that whole world, the thing that energizes that whole world, is the Spirit himself who fills, who fills all things. And what this passage is telling us is that that animating power of the future age to come is now living in our bodies. That future world has broken into this present world and in us. And so your body is filled with God himself, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of you. And so the thing that's going to animate that world is now animating you. And that's why later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has this strange saying where he says to the Corinthian church, a church like ours, he says, you're the ones on whom the ends of the ages have met. You are the overlap of the present age and the future age. It's already begun in you. Or like when Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if you are in Christ, you are new creation. You are a part of the new world to come, plopped down in the middle of the old world. And so that when people meet you and they interact with your life and your personality and your body that's filled with the Spirit of God, they are getting a foretaste of what God is going to do in all his creation when they experience the love of Christ in you because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is our identity as a Christian. You are part of the new world, filled with the Spirit of Christ. And so when you become a Christian, the animating power of the age, of, age to come becomes the animating power of your body and life now. And this is precisely what Paul is saying later in this passage, where you look in verse 14, where it says, the natural person 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. So you can see how Paul talks about these two kinds of people. There's the natural person, and then there's the spiritual person. What's the natural person? Well, the Greek word for natural there is the word sukakos, which, you know, we get the word psyche, which is your soul. A natural person is a soulish person whose body is animated by their natural soul. And our natural souls are infected with sin. And so the thing that's kind of animating us and, you know, defining our desires and our ambitions and our drives is this natural soul. And he says, but then there's the spiritual person whose ambitions and drives and desires are now shaped by this new animating power, the Spirit of God himself, who lives in our bodies. And this interaction of the soul with the Holy Spirit is, I think, the key to answering the second question we're going to look at. So the first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? Theological answer is, he's the third person of the Trinity. He is fully God, and he's personal. And he is the animating power of the age to come, breaking into this age through in our bodies, in our community, in our life together. Okay? The second question is, how does he then work in my life? And two ways we see in this passage. The first is, the Spirit searches our souls. The Spirit searches our souls. You see in verse 9 how it says, But as it is written, When no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So what Paul says, the Holy Spirit searches everything. And if you look in the book of Revelation, it talks about the Lamb of God, who's Christ has these seven eyes, and the seven eyes are the spirit who goes through the four corners of the earth and sees everything, studies everything. And that means that, you know, you think of all the 7.5 billion people that are scattered all around the world, the spirit is searching them all out. He knows all of them. He knows their stories. He knows their personalities. He knows their, their griefs. He's studied them. He's fascinated with people. You know, I mean, he cares about what's happening in people's lives. He searches them out, and he searches us out. And I'll tell you why this is important. You know, I've shared with many of you that as a teenager, uh, I was, had a lot of trouble as a teenager. You know, I dropped out of school and uh, left home. And my parents had me sent away to a boys program on the island of Western Samoa. I spent a year and a half there to get my life together. It's a behavioral modification program. And in this program, we had these seminars that we went to. And during the seminar, each of the boys in this program had to stand on a chair in front of 50 or 60 other kids. And you have to talk about, you know, the family you came from and all the shameful things you've done in your life. And it was very vulnerable. You may have to be totally honest with all these people. And it was, and you know, you couldn't cross your arms. It was like, nope, cross your arms. You've got to be open. Everyone has to see what's happened in your life. And why are you here? Why do you have to get sent away? Why are you so broken? And the idea of this whole process is that it comes from one of the uh, Freud's ideas about the human psyche, that our inner life is like a, an iceberg. And, you know, if you've ever seen a picture of an iceberg, there's the, you have the tip of the iceberg. It's just a very small part of the iceberg that's sticking out above the water. And then you have this huge, majestic 
know, mass of ice under the water. And you're just like, wow, there's that much underneath the, the water? And Freud said, you know, your inner life is like that. You know, the way that you make decisions, you know, the way you relate to people, you know, you choose your friends or you choose your job or choose what church you're going to go to or why you get offended at this or get offended at other things. All of these things come not from conscious things in your inner life, but from subconscious things that you aren't even aware of. And so, you know, you, 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 and so the process of modern therapy is you say, you know, I got to explore my, my family that I came from. And I realize, oh man, the reason I'm so controlling is because I felt so insecure as a child. And so I have to keep everything, you know, orderly and in control. Or the reason I'm so angry and critical at people is because I feel this shame or hurt in my life and I want to deflect it onto other people. And it's immensely powerful that the, the process of therapy is taking the water line of the iceberg and lowering the water line. And say, you know, I'm going to look at the iceberg. And, say, and what modern psychology has told us, profound insight, is you're never going to experience change or transformation in your life if you're only dealing with the top of the iceberg. You need to have transformation down in the lower parts. That was a powerful insight. And, and, you know, all these kids learned fascinating things about their families, about themselves. But there are two huge assumptions about that whole process of lowering the waterline of the iceberg. The first assumption is that once I lower the waterline and look at what's happening in my subconscious, look at my past, look at the shameful things, is I'm going to know what to do with it when I get down there. And, you know, I look in my past and I look and I was like, oh, I was abused in my past or shameful things that I've, I've done in my past. And I see all these things or I hear these voices in my subconscious that you are worthless. You are, no one would love you. You can't trust anyone. How do you know that if you lower the waterline and you look at all that, you're not going to just raise the waterline again? I don't want to see that. You know, I hit it down there for a reason. Maybe you're going to raise the water line a little higher so I see a little less of it. So there's an assumption that once I get down there, I'm going to know how to deal with it. The second assumption is that the iceberg underneath the water level is a manageable size. You know, you might think, okay, I, I could lower the water level a little bit. How far down does this iceberg go? And you might think you got one thing under control and maybe it just goes on and on forever. Maybe there's far bigger than I could ever manage. And this is the great limitation of modern psychology with all its profound insights about the human person is it is a project in self-salvation. It says, if I lower the waterline, I can save myself. The Bible says, no, you can't. Only God can save you. If you have shame for things that you've done in your past, it's only the forgiving blood of Jesus that can wash away that shame. And if you've got voices down in your subconscious that are driving you away from people, driving you into hiding, it's only the voice of God that will silence those. And I'll tell you, I saw this so many times with all these kids that I was in Samoa with. They were immensely articulate about their family of origin and about the shame they'd experienced in their life. And yet they weren't making progress. They weren't changing because they had nothing else to go to. They saw what was under there and they said, now what do I do with it? I don't have the power to undo that. What the Gospels tells us is that God the Holy Spirit 
dives into the depths of our iceberg and begins healing and washing and teaching and speaking before we even go there, working in ways that we're not even aware of. He goes down there before you do. He leads you down there. So, for example, some of you know this famous passage from Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit where Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit works on us at a place where we can't even articulate where it is. I don't even know what's going on. He's, God's working in me. Some of you have felt that. Like, I don't even know God's at work in me in a, in a deep way. And I can't articulate it. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. it it's in my subconscious. And this means that when you come here on Sundays and you sit among God's people and you're sitting among God's children and you come to God's table and you eat the bread of Christ and you eat the, bread of, uh, the body of Christ and drink Christ's blood, when you hear God's word, when you sing, when you hear the assurance of pardon, the Holy Spirit is doing things in you you are not aware of. He's working on you in a subconscious level. And it's just like all of us, you know, when we grew up in families, maybe we were abused as children, and we, we weren't aware of how that was affecting us. It was affecting us at a subconscious level, and it affected our whole life. In the same way, God's love and grace works on you at a subconscious level that you aren't even aware of. Praise God. We don't have to sort it all out. And so to deal with the problem of the subconscious, Jesus doesn't just say, go deal with what's in your iceberg. He sends you his spirit. Now, someone will hear that and say, well, you're saying that we shouldn't go to counseling. We, you know, we shouldn't explore the things in our iceberg. Absolutely not. When I, I'm saying just the opposite. When we know that God himself, the spirit, is leading me, he's gently going to the inner chambers of my soul, how much more courage am I going to have to explore my inner life, knowing that the Spirit's already gone there? He's already searched it out. He already knows it all. It's not a surprise to him. How much boldness am I going to have to open myself up and reveal myself to other people because I know the Spirit is at work in me? I don't have to save myself. And so Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, I can search my soul because God's presence goes with me. The shepherd goes first. And what a hope to say that I don't have to face my iceberg alone. Now the question is, when the Holy Spirit dives down into the subconscious of our life and is working in ways that we're not even aware of, what does he say to those voices when he gets down there? What does he want to communicate to us when he gets down there? And that's the second thing that we see that the Spirit does. Not only that the Spirit searches our souls, but the Spirit searches the mind of God himself. And you see that there in the second half of verse 10 again. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So you have the Spirit searches us, knows us really well. The Spirit searches God, knows God really well, and matches us up in the places where we need to know God in what areas of our life. He knows what we need to know about him. And it's kind of like God is this vast world of all kinds of beauties. 
And the Spirit leads us to see those wonders, those mysteries about what God is like. So I, I think of it this way, you know, I've, I've lived in Bellingham for most of the last 20 years, and until about five years ago, I'd never gone up around Mount Baker. I don't think I'd been to Artist Point. I'd never been on any trails. And, you know, it's a huge, beautiful world that's right in our backyard. I haven't been a part of it. And then five years ago, Nick Kelly is a member of our church. He brought me snow camping. That was my first experience up there. It was kind of intense. And then, you know, he took me backpacking up to, uh, I think it's uh, Anderson Butte and Watson Lakes, I think it's called, and um, these lakes that, that are up by, by Baker Lake, and he took me to all these places I'd never been, and I never would have gone up there. I wanted to. I was interested in it, but I had no idea what was up there, how big, how vast, how gorgeous these meadows and these rocks and these lakes and, and, and these, you know, vistas, these beautiful views of mountains, and of course, the reason I didn't go up there is I didn't know what I was doing, you know. Am I going to eat some berry that is going to kill me? Or am I going to get eaten by a cougar? I don't know. There are cougars and bears up there. I have no idea. I don't know what gear I need. I'm going to, have, I'm going to get up there and find out I needed something to save my life, and I didn't have it. And what I needed was a guide. I needed a Nick Kelly. The Holy Spirit brings us into the mountains of who God is. And he knows oh, this little river over here, this is where you need to go and you need to see God. And this, this lookout, this rock formation, this, will, this fits you. I know you'll like this. You, I'm going to take you there. And he knows all the secret, beautiful places about what God is like. And he knows us. And he knows the places that we need to see and experience. And there's one particular place, you might say, about God that the Spirit knows we need to hear about in particular, and it says it in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The thing the spirit says, we, you know, that our sukkakas, our soul, the thing that we will not naturally know is that things are freely given to us by God, about God's grace. It's not natural for us to believe that God is gracious, that Jesus freely forgives our sins, that he embraces us while we're still sinners, that, uh, that he is sufficient for us, that God is good, he's open-handed, that we don't have to earn things from him, but he's a father who provides for us. It is not natural for our soul to believe that, and the Holy Spirit says, I want to take you to that place, that you would learn that about him. In the deepest parts, deepest chambers, hidden chambers of your soul, and the Spirit is alone is the way that we can know God's grace. And I'll tell you why this is important to you know, behold the wonders and beauties of God is because another shortcoming about modern psychology is that it breeds a narcissism. You know, modern psychology has a tendency to make you turn and look at yourself a lot. And you're constantly looking at yourself. And you know, for some of us who've struggled with depression, you know that that's one of the worst parts about depression is you're thinking about yourself all the time. And it's like, if I could just think about other people, and if I could think about the world, or I could think about my work, and if I could just get my mind, it's like it's turned in on itself. And the Bible says that's not health, to be turned in thinking about yourself all the time. The healthy soul is turned outward. Its eyes are opened, filled with wonder at the goodness of God, and joyfully loving other people. 
And what my soul needs is not me going down and telling myself, I'm okay, I'm really a good person, and trying to undo those voices that are haunting me all the time. What my soul needs is the Holy Spirit to lead me into the depths of who God is. And you know, maybe if I could extend the analogy one more, you know, if Nick Kelly's the Holy Spirit, (laughs) and the mountains are God, the trails are the scriptures. The trails guide us through God's character and who he is. And the Holy Spirit leads us along those trails to take us to the places to see things. So when we read the scriptures with the Holy Spirit, we behold wonders. So it says in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold wonders in your word. And so who is the Holy Spirit? He is a person. It's the personal presence of God and the animating power of the new creation come into the present, plunged into the darkest depths of our subconscious, bringing light and truth and hope and lifting me up to behold the wonders of God. Now, if you're here and you say, wow, what hope? I mean, I don't have to save myself. And I can still explore my inner life, but with the Spirit as my guide. If you say, wow, that is beautiful and that is hopeful, then I have good news for you. That means the Spirit's working right now. The mysterious work, he's here. (laughs) He's in our minds, in souls, and he's directing, he's guiding us to wonders right now. It's happening here. And if you want to have the Holy Spirit in your life, The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And he only works in the life of people who have concluded, I can't save myself. I need Jesus to save me. I need God to save me. I need the Holy Spirit to save me. And so if you want to know what the Christian life is about, it's not just that Jesus dies to forgive all of our sins. He does that. Praise God. But Jesus says, it is far better for me to go to the Father so I can send the Spirit to you who is not just some energy in the world. He is God himself present in our bodies, in our souls, in our minds, searching us out, debating with the lies, telling you of God's love, giving you ideas about how to love others, coloring your imagination to see the world the way God is calling you to see it. Can you imagine having a loving and joyful and brilliant God working on you with such devotion, such intimacy, and such attention. That's the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your Spirit among us to search us out and to lead us into the mountains of God, to the beautiful places of who you are. We long for your spirit to move and work powerfully in our community, healing the deep places of our souls, places of groaning, and to lift our eyes away from ourselves, but to, to you and to our neighbor. Do this mighty work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.